This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Hello and welcome to Triple Vision. I'm David Best, your host for Triple Vision, and with me is Hannah Levitt as my co-host. Hi, Hannah. Hi, David. So what's our topic and who's our guest today? Today, our topic is going to be the legacy of Canada's war-blinded from the First and Second World Wars. And to talk about that with us today is Serge Durflinger, who is a military historian from the University of Ottawa. He's written numerous books about war, but the one we're going to talk to him about is a book called Veterans with a Vision. And it's the history of Canada's war-blinded from First World War and the Second World War, and the legacy of services they created for both themselves and for civilian blind people in Canada. So Serge is going to tell us all about that, David, so I'll let you get started. Serge, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the Triple Vision podcast. Thank you very much. It's a thrill to be here. So you're at the University of Ottawa. Are you in the history department or... Yeah, that's right. I, I've had a lifelong interest in the study of veterans. I worked five years at the Canadian War Museum, and then I jumped to the University of Ottawa about uh, 20 years ago, and I'm still there. Most of my research or publications are somehow related to veterans, and in the particular case that we're talking about today, veterans with a disability. Had you been exposed to the disabled side of the military story before? Yeah, I certainly, I was very close to the veterans community, especially in the Montreal area where I'm from, and had some experience with the war wounded. You know, in this country, we seem to know a lot about our war dead, and I mean, justifiably so, but our war wounded often fly under the radar, and uh, they sometimes have to live the rest of their lives, decades, with the impact of war on their bodies. But you know, uh, Hannah, even more particularly, I grew up and was partly raised by a blind grandmother. Oh. And so this particular book and the research, yeah, yeah. And so the research that went into this hit home for me. So I was able to marry up uh, both my professional interests, but my own personal experiences growing up. So it offered me an emotive research experience, not, not just sort of the clinical research experience, you know? It's almost a bit of a ancestry story for you too. It's certainly true that as I was discovering the causes of blindness, the impact of blindness on a person's life, many, many times I thought back to incidents or moments that I was with my grandmother and I realized what a courageous person. And as I think I write somewhere in the book, this woman taught me that you do not need sight to have vision. Right. Yeah, Serge. I was interested to find out what inspired you to write a book called Veterans with a Vision, and what do you think inspired those veterans to join together and actually form an organization? Well, David, um, it, it happened 
uh, well, it was happenstance, actually. I was in Toronto at the Royal Canadian Military Institute, and I was giving a speech on another book I had written, also about veterans. And while I was there, there were a group of veterans wearing blazers and berets that I didn't recognize. You know, the berets were cardinal red. And as I approached them, I realized that they were representing the blinded veterans. And so I started to talk to one in particular. His name was Bill Main, and he had been uh, blinded while a prisoner of the Japanese in Hong Kong. And not long after, I got a phone call. And it was from the CNIB, and they wanted to know would I be interested in writing the history of the war-blinded veterans as they were not getting any younger. And so I leapt at the chance. I, I, don't, I don't think I hesitated 10 seconds. And so you were asking me about my motivation. It was working with these men and women. They inspired me. Just working with them, speaking with them, learning their, their histories and their stories and seeing the sense of camaraderie that they had, feelings for one another, um, and their sense of humor. I, I, was, I was quite taken aback by that at first. Then as I got to know them, I wasn't. But they were, um, they were a, a wonderful group of, of individuals. And as a collective, they represented a hidden part of not only the history of Canada at war, but the history of Canadian blindness. And so it was an easy... Um, transition for me to walk into that research and be amongst these wonderful people. Yeah, so that took you back to uh, 1922, I guess, when the first World War veterans formed an organization. And what do you think inspired them to do that? Well, before the First World War, the blind in Canada were often relegated to positions of indignity, both by the public and as far as occupational ghettos were concerned, whether it's broom making or piano tuning or something, and that there was a, um, a certain social, even fear of, of the blind. When these, and the important thing, David, is that when these young men go to war, they're sighted. They're not born blind. So they were sighted young men in their 20s with their futures ahead of them. And I think that when they uh, wound up being wounded and then collected in a center for the war blinded uh, in Britain, uh, in London, at St. Dunstan's in Regent's Park, they started to develop an understanding of what was required to allow their lives back in Canada to be fit of their service and of their disability. And when they arrived back in the country, many were quite stunned that there was no recourse for them. There was no adequate retraining programs. There was no sense or semblance that they could continue to be productive members of society with jobs and families and, and everything else. And this motivated a small knot of them, very able people, organized, passionate, convincing, talented. And they were grouped around a remarkable Canadian named Edwin Baker, who as a young lieutenant was blinded in Flanders in 1915. And they came back and decided that there was, a, there was more to do um, as veterans, but also as veterans who can help the civilian community to help overcome social stigmas and to lead more productive lives than society at that time would otherwise allow. And so a man like Baker and others were the driving force between explaining the creation of the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. The impetus was from the veterans with the help of existing schools for the blind, 
uh, for example. But nevertheless, there was that core veteran, that um, veterans community that pushed the agenda and made their war-related uh, disabilities something that the government had to uh, respond to and help train people, create the conditions where that was possible, and that the history of the war of the blinded in Canada was directly uh, linked to the return of these First World War veterans who wanted not only to improve their own lot, but the lot of all Canadians who were blinded. In 1922, they formed the Sir Arthur Pearson Association, who was Arthur Pearson, and what did that organization provide for them? When the war blinded were sent to Britain for care and rehabilitation, there had been a newspaper proprietor, one of these news barons named Sir Arthur Pearson. And he developed, I, I think it might have been macular degeneration, I can't recall. But bit by bit, uh, he lost his sight until such time as he was completely blinded or blind. And when the war broke out, he decided to do something about the casualties of uh, who had become blinded. And he established in Regent's Park, with the help of some uh, financial contributions from other wealthy people in Britain, a rehabilitation center for the blind. And many of the about 175 Canadian uh, war blinded of the First World War. And there, Hannah, I've anticipated your question. And yes, you have. <laughs> um, about 175. <laughs> they were essentially helped by Sir Arthur Pearson, who helped to fund um, various activities and made the retraining of Canada's war blinded and the whole empire's war blinded a means of having them meet one another band together, and then go back to the four corners of the empire and bring with them the notion that they can contribute. And they also brought with them, David, the sense that they were soldiers, they were veterans, they were patriots. They didn't want to be considered only as blind, and they wanted to return uh, to a life that they had and knew that there was potential in. So after the CNIB is founded, and in Toronto, there's the aptly named Pearson Hall. This is where Canada's war blinded were able to take further rehabilitation training and socialization and other means whereby they can adapt to their disability and reintegrate society. And so uh, it was called Pearson Hall, partly by Baker, who learned from Pearson that it was possible to anticipate a satisfying life even after having been uh, war wounded in the way that he had been. And so these Canadians, after uh, the founding of the CNIB, decided that what they needed was an advocacy group. They needed to band together as a specialized type of wounded veteran in order to advocate with the federal government for special kinds of readaptation technology or equipment or opportunity and also as an aftercare that might have been required at a time when there's no social safety net, you know, there's no welfare state at the time. And so it began as a means of pressuring the government to improve on pensions and the types of services that might be afforded to Canada's war blinded. So the Sir Arthur Pearson Association and the CNIB 
always had a very, very close association. And frequently the executive of one was a member of the executive of the other. And so even some of the CNIBs, including Baker himself, were members of both organizations. And so there remained that strong core element of First World War veterans bringing with them the the lot and the plight of Canadian civilian blind. And so that's how SAPA came to be. So after um, CNIB was established and Arthur Pearson was a big part of it, what kind of advances happened? Did we see housing become an issue, family pensions of veterans? Like what types of things came out of that? So nothing happened all at once. It was always in stages. Now, you mentioned housing and the aftercare program there was, or what they called attendance care, uh, somebody that would attend. But there was also the uh, Pearson Hall in which veterans could live amongst themselves. And sometimes it took longer and sometimes some were despondent and they needed, a, it's not a refuge. Um, it's not an almshouse or a, or a charity. It was a place where the war blinded could feel comfortable and be retrained at their own pace. And so it's not exactly housing but it is a means by which they could stay together in that respect. And bit by bit, as the 20s turned into the 30s and the Great Depression struck, there was a need for many different veterans groups to come together. So you have the uh, the amputees, veterans with tuberculosis, or other veterans groups like them who had special medical needs and for which the pension provisions did not meet their special needs. And so they banded together themselves to petition government for increased money and also money for spouses who had to inordinately be present in the lives of of their husbands. And so that that was deserving of recompense, things like that. Is the Sir Arthur Pearson Association still active today? It is not, uh, David. It lasted for a very long time. It was tragically renewed by the war uh, blinded of the Second World War. And when I was hired to write this book, there was probably fewer than 30 members left. And some of them attended the book launch. I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled uh, to see them there. I dedicated the book to my grandmother, as the to whom I've already made reference. And I also dedicated it to Bill Maine, who had been blinded at Hong Kong, as I mentioned a moment ago. However, the Sir Arthur Pearson Association wound down. And eventually, that sort of SAPA element to the CNIB sadly had to fold. And the deal was that it would never fold while there was still one of them alive. And then through a series of memoranda of understanding between SAPA and the CNIB, the CNIB agreed to take over SAPA's assets and very vibrantly maintain its presence in memory and in in various other activities. Can you talk a little bit about the stigma of blindness and how even though they were all wounded soldiers and all equal, whether they were blind or physically disabled. Can you talk a little bit about that stigma that persisted even amongst the veterans toward blind people? Because I think in one of your chapters, you talked about one of the organizations not wanting blind people to travel to some memorials. Right. 
Hannah, what happens is when you're in uniform and you're exalted, you're ennobled. And so there's a veneer of patriotism and respect and also of public gratitude for having served. And if you were visibly wounded, even more so. But it doesn't mean that in the veterans community or amongst some uh, of the public that the, a person's blindness was um, more important than their military service. That was subordinated to the fact that they were now blind. And so that some of the old stigmas related to the incapacities of a person who um, was blind uh, reemerged, not with, and especially as the, the First World War began to recede a little bit in public memory, or that the idea of seeing wounded veterans in the street made it more commonplace. It is true that there was sometimes a little bit of animosity with the Legion, for example, where the Legion felt that they were usurping some of the role of the Legion, which was to gather the veterans in a centralized organization, and that SAPA as an offshoot was sometimes ill-perceived. And when, for example, the Legion organized the Vimy pilgrimage back to Europe in 1936, the war-blinded wanted representation. The, the war-blinded were sometimes treated with um, pity, or they were otherwise dealt with in a manner that was not as dignified, perhaps, as other veterans. And so it was not always a guarantee of being treated on, a, on an equal basis from a social or a social setting, for example. But I wanted to add that some of that is um, the exception, not the rule. One of the things that Pearson taught them very early on at St. Dunstan's London, when they started to return from the battlefields and learn um, learn how to be blind, essentially. That was Pearson's philosophy. Right away, he gave them all a watch that was in Braille and that they were instantly able to tell time. And not instantly, but they were able to tell time. That's important. And then they were taught how to type. And some never did quite get it, but most did. And they were able to communicate. They can write a letter. And by the 20s and 30s, many of them had become very adept at what they were doing. And so that they, they obtained the admiration of people, including other veterans. So I wouldn't exaggerate. I don't know if I did in the book or not, but I think it's more the exception than the rule. Yeah, so it seems the uh, blinded veterans laid the groundwork for civilians with vision loss in building the Sir Arthur Pearson Association and then linking it to CNIB. Um, are there other events that you know of that have you've come across in your study that have records with regard to large number of people becoming blind or partially sighted? Well, the, the cataclysm of war was clearly the, the events that created suddenly a whole series of uh, blinded soldiers or, or people had been blinded through a cataclysmic event or a catastrophic event. Another th that, that comes to mind, I know Hannah is quite familiar with it, is the Halifax explosion in 1917, in which two vessels collided in Halifax Harbor and were on fire. And one of them contained an almost unheard of amount of explosives that detonated right in Halifax Harbor, killed 2,000 people and wounded about 9,000. And many of them were blinded by shards of glass. Tragically, many people went to their windows to look at the burning ships 
when they detonated, it was at that time, it was the single greatest explosion outside of the natural world. So not counting, let's say, a volcano like Krakatoa or something, but the what they called man-made, you know, at, in, in, at that time. And many of these people who had been watching this, the explosion was so powerful and so swift that it blew the glass right back into their faces, permanently disfiguring them and making them blind. And so there was a, many of them were children as well. And so that there was suddenly in the, in the blink of an eye, the, there was a massive number of war blinded at that, not massive, but already coming back to Canada and for which some kind of retraining had already begun. And now you have this enormous number of civilians uh, suddenly who had become blind. And Halifax was already the site of a school for the blind. So there was an infrastructure. Um, It was damaged too, uh, by the way, in that explosion. Um, And so that's what comes to mind really, David, is that moment there in Halifax, which created suddenly a large number of of civilian uh, blind. Yeah, we'll be looking at some of the other uh, historical events that created waves of blindness as well, things like the uh, like rubella and yeah. as well as the incubator babies, the uh, the children that were put in incubators before they understood the how much oxygen to use, and they there was a whole generation of babies blinded that then demanded educational mm-hmm. services as they got older. So we'll be looking at a lot of those waves of blindness throughout our podcast. But the war blinded is definitely the first one in history that really set the stage for Canadian blind. For sure. A war had already been a catalyst for for blindness in the past. It had not really been a Canadian experience. But Mm -hmm. even in, in the Middle Ages in France, hospices were established by the king in order to house people who were blind or in obviously uh, deteriorating eyesight. Uh, Many of them had come back from the Crusades, for example, and had been uh, blinded in action. The U.S. Civil War in the 1860s, same thing. There was a fairly sizable number of American wounded who were blinded. And so there was the establishment of certain facilities for them as well. So it was not unknown. There were some blinded in the South African War, or referred to as the Boer War. I noticed you didn't talk about the Boer War in your book. Was there so few blinded that it didn't have an impact sort of politically or socially? Well, I do mention the case, and I think there's a photo of him in there, of a man, cavalry guy named um, Lorne Malloy. And he was known as the Blind Trooper, Trooper Malloy. And he became a well-known wounded veteran of the South African War. But Canada only sent 7,300 people um, to South Africa over a two-year period. So it's not the same numbers, and it's not the kind of war uh, that, like, say, in the First World War, where there's um, uh, intense artillery fire that's sending shrapnel and and debris at a very high velocity into potentially into people's faces and and so on. So it didn't have the same nature of warfare that would have created as many uh, blind as in the First World War. However, there was um, some British war blind. One man won the Victoria Cross, and he was he was blinded in his effort, and he became a fixture at the St. Dunstan's in London and had befriended Pearson, and he was an inspiration in many ways to a lot of the 
empires uh, war blinded who cycled through St. Dunstan's. So it did exist. And in the Canadian context, it's really Malloy. And Malloy becomes, um, he goes on to become a, a professor at the Royal Military College in Kingston. And so he's also not only a high profile veteran of South Africa, but he's an enormous success story that demonstrated that his blindness need not have been an impediment to a satisfying career. And he did it at a time prior to the First World War, at a time when blindness was considered something merely to be pitied. And so in some ways, he was a trailblazer even before Edwin Baker. And then during the First World War, Malloy also works as a fundraising campaigns and he visits the war wounded and he's an inspirational figure as well. But it, it, it won't surprise any of us or any, any listeners that war has always created blind veterans. But one thing is, up until the First World War, a much smaller percentage of wounded survived. And so many war blinded did not survive or they did not survive long after the wounding that caused their blindness. And so they did not live to be uh, veterans for decades. Whereas in the First World War, the advancement of uh, medical uh, science, and especially in the Second World War, meant that more people survived. And so if you're likely to be blinded in combat, there's a good chance that the rest of you also suffered some wounding. And so people were able to live and then um, go on and be war blinded, as well as sometimes maimed. There was one war blinded. Uh, from the First World War, uh, Alexander Vietz, who lost an arm as well as being war-blinded, and he also suffered uh, grievous wounds elsewhere in his body. And so being war-blinded was often grouped with other serious wounds. The idea of war as being a uh, a catalyst for war-blinded becomes more manifest in the 20th century because of survivability. Okay. I want to thank you, Serge, for taking the time and joining us and telling us about the history of veterans that lost their vision in the early wars of Canada. And I think this sets up the groundwork for us as we move forward with the Triple Vision podcast in finding out what impact this actually had on civilians with blindness in Canada. If people are interested in your book, Veterans with a Vision, how can they get it or where would they find it? Um, well, David, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It was really a thrill to uh, have an opportunity like this. Veterans with a Vision was published by UBC Press in Vancouver, and it is um, available in paperback from UBC Press. And one of the great thrills of my career, if I can just slip this in, one of the great thrills of my career was at the book launch for this book in Toronto at CNIB uh, headquarters, right in the Sapa Lounge was to discover that the book had been made an audiobook and also translated into Braille. And in 30 plus years of career and publications and books and everything else, that might have been the proudest moment of my career. So thank you for the opportunity. That's a great story. I really appreciate you identifying two sort of like really important, maybe we could even call them blind heroes from our history, because it's really important that we understand who impacted our early lives as blind Canadians. So thank you very much for identifying those people for us. Yes, Hannah, Trooper Lorne Malloy, in his era, 
was a famous war veteran and a famous blind person with a very prestigious career at Royal Military College in Kingston. He is forgotten to time, but he deserved to be um, resuscitated from the past. Edwin Baker is one of the great Canadians of the 20th century, and he deserves to be returned from the obscurity that history has put him to. And even after the Second World War, people like uh, Bill Main or Fred Woodcock, Second World War veterans who picked up the mantle of uh, uh, Edwin Baker and carried the organization and created visibility for war-blinded and blinded Canadians for decades after the Second World War. These are heroes. Mm-hmm. And they're not just war heroes. They're Canadian heroes. Well, we'll do our best to uh, make sure that people know about them. Thank you very much. So, Hannah, it's certainly exciting to learn about our history and what the early days were like for blind people in Canada. I think the uh, story that Serge has laid down for us leads into our next interview. Would you like to give our listeners a little bit of a hint as to what our next interview will be? Sure. On our next podcast, we'll meet Jim Sanders, who was a longtime employee, very committed person with the CNIB. And he's got a lot of stories to tell about the early days and the formation of, of services and the increasing demands and services by the CNIB. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-based communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Technical assistance has been provided by Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And finally, I thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to Triple Vision with questions or comments, you can email us at triplevision21 at gmail.com or at Twitter, triplevision21. Hi, I'm Red Sale, the host of My Life in Books on AMI-audio. Join me on Mondays at 1pm Eastern Time as I chat with a selection of renowned authors to read between the lines of their latest work, riffle through their back pages, and discover which books inspired them to pick up the pen. That's My Life in Books with me, Red Sale, Mondays at 1pm Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Or download the podcast from your favourite provider.